0: please turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 22. For those of you who might be new, let me take a moment to uh, reorient you um, to this letter. The letter of Ephesians, small though it is, is almost a perfect little summary of Christianity. The first three chapters, Paul tells us the great doctrines of Christianity, what God has graciously accomplished for us through Jesus Christ. It's a, it tells us what God did. The last three chapters tell us especially what we are to do in response to the gospel. So as you might expect, the second half of the book is filled with commands The first half actually only has one command in it. And it's in our passage this morning. It is to remember. To remember what you were before God rescued you. So the first half tells us your story. The story of your salvation. It is our our chapter especially it's kind of like the Christian's biography in, in two aspects. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, which is very famous, and more famous than our passage, uh, tells us what you were before God saved you by, by showing us that when God saved you, it was a resurrection. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, because of his great mercy, even when you were dead, made you alive together with Christ. Our passage goes back and looks at, looks at our salvation from a different perspective. Not resurrection being made alive, but reconciliation being brought near. And you'll see the same pattern. At that time, you were, and then later on, it'll say, but now what God has done. And then we'll see at the end, God's future plan for you. It is the Christian's biography. It is your story, the experience of every believer. So let us pray before we read. Lord, we ask that you would help us to remember what we were. To see all the obstacles that your great power had to overcome to make us alive, to bring us near. And the wonderful plan that you have for us now that you have given us access to you through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen. 3,500 years ago, Moses stood outside the promised land and addressed the people of Israel one last time before he died. Israel, you remember, had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years and God rescued them with a mighty hand. And for the next 40 years, he led them through the wilderness to this point when they were finally going to enter the land that so long ago had been promised to them. They were God's unique people on earth. And now Moses was going to tell them how to live as God's unique people in the land while they were still surrounded by the temptations that surround us in this world. What well, we, have, we have in Deuteronomy, what Moses said it, that day before they entered the promised land. So you might think of the Deuteronomy as a book of laws, which it is, but it begins like Ephesians by reminding the people of how God saved them. Moses said, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. This was so important, in fact, that God instituted the Passover meal as a yearly reminder to God's people so that they would remember this very thing, that they were slaves in the land of Egypt, and God rescued them, that they were lost, and now they are found. 1,500 years later, on the very night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took that meal and he fulfilled it and he transformed it into the Lord's Supper. It was a picture of how Jesus rescued us. Not just from slavery to e- in Egypt but slavery to sin. And Jesus said, do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Remember that you were a slave in the world of sin. Remember what God did, how he rescued you. Remembering is a big part of Christianity. We, we keep this day special. We remember it and participate in that rest. Now here in verse 11, Paul is applying this command to the Gentiles. Paul calls these brothers and sisters Gentiles in the flesh, because the Old Testament mark of God's people was circumcision. And while these brothers and sisters weren't circumcised outwardly, they're still part of God's true people. These Christians here are are still uncircumcised outwardly, but Paul is emphasizing that the outward sign of circumcision can be separated from the inward reality, so they, God has done something not with human hands on our hearts, on their hearts, that makes them holy, that makes them part of God's people, even though they were separate from Israel. Paul is going to bring them together, though, in this passage to show that they are part of the same family now, that we are part of the same family. Now, circumcision has been replaced in the church, with baptism, as the Lord's Supper has replaced the Passover. And baptism cannot change human hearts, but it is a picture of what God does in, in cleansing us inwardly. It's the heart that is the heart of the matter. And Paul wrote in Galatians 6:14, that it is not circumcision or uncircumcision that is anything. What matters is a new creation. But Paul's main point here in Ephesians is that the Gentiles, the Gentile believers were at one time far off. They were not part of Israel. They did not have the outward mark. They did not have the inward mark. They had nothing. There was a time at which they're supposed to remember where they had no blessings, no hope. These five deficiencies that he lays out for them, they were without Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise, without God, without hope. What a miserable condition. Although, They had many idols. They were still godless, for they didn't know the real God. They were hopeless, godless, without promise, without Christ. Brothers and sisters, so were you. And how this thought should strike our hearts with sorrow. Without Christ. Do you remember how Paul began this letter? He was praising God who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every every spiritual blessing you could ever need is there in Christ. There are no spiritual blessings apart from him. In Christ, we have our election, our predestination, our redemption, our sealing, our inheritance, our resurrection. Christ is our life. To live is Christ. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. In his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And you didn't have him. You were lost. You didn't know him. You were like the prodigal son, far, far away, lost in darkness. Brothers and sisters, this is your story. This is your past. Sometimes it's hard for us to remember that here in America. America's history is a little bit different than many countries. Many countries, they remember how lost they were. And then one day a missionary came. And then everything was changed from that point on. Many people who are in America now came from Europe. They already were Christians. And they don't, sometimes don't appreciate the vast change that came, that they were lost. And one day the gospel came and brought us near. But this is our story nonetheless. We were lost. Many people died to bring the gospel to someone along the line, someone who brought the gospel to you. And because of that, you are not lost in darkness This morning. Perhaps in your own life you grew up not coming to church, not knowing God, or coming to church, and you still didn't know God. And one day you heard the Savior's voice calling you. And when you came to Him, everything was reversed. You who formerly were without hope, now were filled with hope, filled with purpose, filled with promises. Heirs of the promises, grafted in to the vine, brought near. Now, that great salvation, that great change was looked at in the first half of chapter 2 by speaking of it as a resurrection from the dead. You were lost. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were enslaved to the devil. You were under God's wrath, under his condemnation but God made you alive together with Christ. That's a wonderful passage and we love it because it's so clear about what God did, that it's all by grace. But the second half of Ephesians 2 is more corporate in telling this story of your salvation, how it wasn't just you who were saved, but you were saved and brought together with others And that, in many ways, is more at the heart of Ephesians than the first half of chapter 2. We will be reminded in chapter 4 to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this part of our chapter tells how you were far off. You were strangers. You were lost, friendless, hopeless, godless, Christless, and God brought you near. And all of that has been reversed. And so we are to remember that and be thankful. We were far from God. You did not seek him out. You did not, like the prodigal son, say, it was better for me. Let me go back to my father. No, he came to get you. He had to wallow in that mud to bring you back. We were lost and we weren't looking for him. And he found us. He brought us near. How did he do this? Verse 13 tells us it was by his blood. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. His life, his voluntary sacrifice on the cross. You are to remember not just that you were lost, But remember that to get you back, to bring you to God, cost the son of God's life. His blood poured out for you. For you, brothers and sisters, to be brought near, the son of God had to be forsaken. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was to bring you near. He was rejected. He was punished. He bore God's wrath. It was his blood that brought you near. The suffering that drove him away was the same suffering, the same blood that brought you near. Chapter 1, verse 7 tells us that our redemption from sin is by his blood. Chapter 2, verse 13 tells us that our reconciliation to God is also by his blood. So what can wash away your sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can draw you near to God? Again, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And for this reason, Christ himself is our peace. He doesn't just bring peace. He's not just the great peacemaker. Amazingly, he is our peace. We are united together to one another in him. It is in Christ that man is reconciled, brought together with others. Love is the perfect bond of unity, and sin has the opposite effect. It divides. When sin entered the world, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden there was a the cherub with the flaming sword to block the way to god but also if you if you read those first few chapters you recognize how adam and eve the perfect couple with the perfect situation started blaming each other their children one of their sons killed their other son And man, relationships with man started breaking apart. All relationships started breaking apart because of sin. But love has the opposite effect it's the perfect bond of unity. So we were separated from God, we were separated from each other. And Paul, in speaking of reconciliation in our passage, speaks of both of these separations, that we were far from Christ and we were also separated from God's people. And both of these separations, you may know, were marked in the temple in Jerusalem. As Paul wrote this, that temple was still standing. If the Ephesians who read this, le- read this letter were to go to Israel at this time, they would have seen separations that kept them apart from the God that they know. Now, in the, in the temple, there is the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And then there was the holy place where the, the, the showbread was and the menorah, the lampstand, and the incense. After that, there's the court of the priests And then the court of Israel, where the Jewish men were allowed to go. And then the court of the women, where the women were allowed to go, the women of Israel. And these were all on the same level, although they were separated. And then there were five steps that went down. And a wall that was four and a half feet tall, surrounding it, with the words on it, If you trespass, your death will be your own fault. Speaking to Gentiles. And then there was another flat space. And then 14 more steps down. And then the court of the Gentiles. That area where Jesus would have been when he overturned the money changers. And he said, my house, quoting Isaiah 55 will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. For all the nations. And he is the one who broke down that wall, as it were, to bring the Gentiles to God, to unite us, not just that wall, but the temple curtain torn at his death, that we might have access all the way to God. Isn't that amazing? Remember, brothers and sisters, that is where you were. Far off from God. But Paul, Paul might be considering this. He might think of it. They might know it because when Paul was arrested, you know, the arrest at the end of Acts, where he's taken away, eventually goes to Rome... This is because he was accused of bringing Trophimus, the Ephesian, into the temple courts. So they would probably know in Ephesus about how serious this division was. The wall was a visible marker that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. But it was more than a little wall and a bunch of steps that separated us because the ceremonial law also functioned as a barrier to distinguish and separate God's people from the world. So there are these extra rules such as you Jews are not allowed to eat pork. You know, you have to uh, be circumcised. There was regulations as to food and drink and washings and what clothes you could wear. And these, these ordinances were like a wall of separation. Jesus broke it down. He abolished it in order to bring us together. That is why when Cornelius was going to come in, Cornelius the Gentile, God illustrated this to Peter by telling him, eat these foods that were formerly unclean. And what I tell you is not unclean, no longer consider unclean it was no longer necessary to keep those outward rules because the separation was now broken down. God in the cross abolished those ceremonial laws. And God brought us together as one church, not as two peoples of God, not as Israel, God's people, and the church as two separate people, but he has brought us together as one people. And there was another barrier that separated even the Jews from God. You remember, as I mentioned, the curtain, the thick curtain veil that prevented even the priests from entering the holiest place in the temple, the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in there only once a year. That curtain was a reminder of sin. And that And a reminder that the sacrificial system that they had was insufficient, insubstantial. That they had to do sacrifices again and again and again, year after year, generation after generation, because it wasn't good enough what they were doing to do away with sin. It pointed forward to one day a sacrifice in which, when it occurred, it would be finished. And that's what Jesus said on the cross. When he said, it is finished, it wasn't just referring to his own suffering. His saving work but the old ceremonial system that was insufficient, the sacrificial system was now done away with, no longer needed. And so when Jesus died, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. Christ himself in this way became our peace. Not just our peace with one another, but our peace with God. By his blood, all those barriers have been removed for you who are in Christ. We have access to God to come as it were in our prayer to the holy of holies. You know, I've, heard, I've heard people ask before, If you were to die tonight and go up to the the gates of heaven and Peter were to say to you, Why should I let you in? You know, we always have Peter as this this gatekeeper. I don't know why. But if I were to come up to the gates of heaven and Peter were to ask me, Why should I let you in? I would say, Peter, you're my hero. And uh, you did amazing things. You're a much better Christian than I ever was. But all every day of my life, I came to God in prayer. And I never once asked your permission. And I'm not going to start today. And I'd walk right past him. <laughs> because if there was a barrier, brothers and sisters, to keep you from God, Jesus would break it down. He brought you near. He gives you access to do things in such a way, with such boldness, that even the Jews, that it would surprise even the Jews back then. We have access to come all the way in, all the way into the Holy of Holies, where Jesus has entered for us. And he carries us in, as it were, into God's presence. Jesus came to clear the way for us to come to God and to bring us peace. Isn't that a wonderful title for our Savior? Our peace. Peace between God and man. So brothers and sisters, do not doubt that if you have him, you have peace. That you are reconciled to God. He has done everything necessary for you to come safely to God through him. He is your peace. In verse 17, quoting Isaiah 57, tells us that Christ preached peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. And Paul is applying this to the Jews who were near and to us Gentiles who were far off. Isn't that interesting? Christ is our pre- our peace? He also preaches peace. You've probably heard people say, "Practice what you preach." Jesus is what he preaches. He preached peace. He is our peace. And how does Christ preach peace? It's by the gospel, which Paul calls later on in Ephesians chapter six the gospel of peace. It's the gospel by which God brings us near, uh, offers up Christ to us, who when we come to him, we have peace with God. And Christ still does this today, whenever the gospel is preached. It's not the person behind the pulpit. That person is just a messenger. But at some point, Christ himself calls you by name, and you come to him. Christ is the preacher. So whenever the gospel is preached, it's just as if Jesus himself were speaking, even though he uses sinful men like me to speak those words. It's by the gospel that he changes our hearts and brings us to himself and to God. And this is what Christ has done for you. The result of this, brothers and sisters, is verse 19. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are of God's household, members of God's household. We are citizens of God's kingdom. You are not a second-class citizen. Some of you have lived in foreign countries before. You know what it's like when I was in Taiwan. I would often order, you know, say at McDonald's or something. And they would say in Chinese, you know, you know, quarter pounder or whatever for the foreigner. That's the way they would refer to me because I'm obviously a foreigner. And always, It was always a reminder to me that I didn't really belong there. That although they were very welcoming, they still knew I wasn't part of them. It is not the case for you in God's kingdom. You are not just a citizen in God's kingdom, you who have Christ. You are members of his household. You are his family. Can you imagine if your mom or dad, as you came to the front door, said, why should I let you into this house? You would say, well, this is my house. Those are my brothers and sisters in there. You're my father. There won't won't be that question when you go to heaven, brothers and sisters. It will be a welcome home. I have been preparing a place for you. Enter into the joy of your master. So then, brothers and sisters, you are no longer fellow, no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens, you are of God's household. We belong to one another. And this has great implications for us as a church as well. Because if I am God's son, adopted son, you are God's adopted daughter, God's adopted son. It means we're brothers, sister, we're siblings, we're part of the same family. It doesn't matter what you were before, what race you are. Your cultural differences, the thing, the answer to the diversity that seems to be sometimes tearing the country apart, tearing the world apart, these divisions, they are so temporary. The answer is Jesus Christ. That you one day will be closer to brothers and sisters of yours in Russia, in Ukraine, in China in North Korea than you may be to your neighbor here in Mount Pleasant. And the, the society that Jesus is, is building in the church will outlast all the empires of this world. All the countries. They are regarded as less than nothing to God. A drop in the bucket. But what God is building here will last forever. The, the people who lived in Ephesus, they stood in the shadow of one of the wonders of the world. But the church is the first wonder of the new world, the new creation. And it will never fall apart. God has brought us together. And therefore, how can we create disunity? What God has joined together. Let no one separate. Christ has broken down the walls. How could we set them up again? This point, we should remember always to preserve this unity that the Holy Spirit has created. This was Jesus' prayer. The night he was betrayed, he prayed to God that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. So church unity should be very close to all of your hearts. If there's someone in the congregation that you just don't feel close to, remember, God brought you together. Do everything you can to be reconciled, to not hold grudges, which which tear us apart. But go out to eat with that person. Invite that person over. Take the extra effort to make this church so united, that the world knows that God has done something here that they long to copy in the outside world. I think it's amazing if you think of the church in Philippi, if you might remember in Acts 16, Paul went there and he met Lydia, the first European convert she was probably from turkey she was a wealthy merchant soon after that though he was arrested after after casting out a demon from a slave girl and then the roman soldier who who watched over the jail was converted himself so now consider this church you have romans you have greeks you have jews you have wealthy merchants you have you know people with, from rome you have other people in the prison you have a, a formerly demon possessed slave girl you have all strata of society here poor wealthy middle class if there were such a thing then you have romans you have greeks you have jews men and women all in this tiny little church Gathering together. What it must have been like. Amazing. The diversity that existed almost immediately in that little church. We are called to be united to one another, though we may be very different in our backgrounds. And Christ has joined us together, for the church is described not only as a kingdom, but as a household and as a building a holy temple. God has brought us near and he's making us into his own house. Wouldn't it be amazing for the Ephesians to read? The temple of Diana, the temple of Artemis was there. The temple to God was still still standing in Jerusalem when he wrote this. But Paul is saying, they are the temple that God is building What Jesus has built far surpasses any of these other buildings. It is the church, the temple of God, built out of millions of believers on earth from every tribe and tongue and nation. It is a living, growing, eternal temple with a sure foundation, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. This tells us a little bit about what God's plans for you, for your future. God is building a temple, and a temple is God's house. God's plan is to dwell with you. So there are, there's not many commands in the first three chapters, but you see the implications building up, don't you? God has called us, chapter one, to be holy. He has adopted us that we might be before him. He has raised us, He created us, for good works. Therefore, what is it? You're, you can already see the next three chapters coming. But God has also made us not just for good works, but for his own indwelling. That he might live in us. Now the most important part of the temple is the cornerstone. Of Jesus Christ That frames the whole building. The walls would extend from the cornerstone. So it acted as a model and the connecting piece for the whole building. Jesus holds us all together. He unites us to one another. Isn't it amazing what God has done? We were separate separate from Christ, separate from God's people, unable to get anywhere close to the temple. And now you are the temple. What a comfort that should be to us that God is with us and that Jesus Christ is zealous for his temple. Zeal for his house consumes him. If Christ is our peace, you are truly reconciled to God. If Jesus is your cornerstone, then you are truly secure. If Christ has made us into a temple, take comfort Sin shall not reign over you. Cling to Christ and he will change you. Now can you imagine what we will be when God is done? Remember what you were apart from Christ. Remember your chains. Remember how far off you were. Remember what God has done to bring you near, to make you alive remember the wonderful plans he has for you. He is turning us into something amazing. And when he's done, the whole universe will marvel at what he's done. Remember this and let us respond to him with humility and love and praise. To God alone be the glory. Amen. Lord, we thank you that you have not only raised us to life, You've not only forgiven us and sent us away, but you called us, you brought us near. You've given us access to you, and you want to dwell in us. Lord, help us to preserve this unity that you've given us with other Christians. Help us to long for it, to pursue it, to pursue peace. Help us to never forget how far off we were, that we would never lose sight of what obstacles you overcame to bring us close. Let us never take it for granted, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.